And I have popcorn because a Hercule Perot book usually warrants popcorn. Thank you for joining the Escape With Me book club. Escape with me, Sam Reiner. And me, Hannah Rossell. Into our most recent read. Come with us as we evade reality and go into detail about a new book. We'll be covering the book from beginning to end, so there will be spoilers. Today we're going all over London, several places in England, to France, and even to Brussels, anywhere from 1880 to 1924. Published March 1924, Perot Investigates is a collection of short stories following some of Perot's many successes and one one failure. Given this is her first time writing mysteries in a shorter format, is it possible for all of them to be as satisfying as her novels, or will she find the boundary of her talents? No. <laughs> no, she did not. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. They're very good. So the historical context for this, this is actually the fourth book she's written. We brought up previously her first contract with the, I think it's the Bodley Head. Yep. It's an English publishing house. Huh. Founded in 1887 and existing as an independent entity until 1970s when it was sold to Penguin Random House. Oh. It was one of the big five. I'm not surprised it's Penguin. Yeah. Anyway, that's the bad background of the bodily head a snagging agatha christie was a great move on their part oh yeah not so great for her but not super great for her just how long the contract is so this is her fourth out of six books that she has to write for them oh and slight correction i said with the second book that it was a brother and sister duo and actually it's husband and wife oh i was corrected on that oops Sorry, I have not read it. Oops. I will eventually read it, but not today. We're following Perot today. Yep. So yeah, this is her third Perot book and her fourth book total. After this, there are two books that she writes that aren't Hercule Perot. So by the next book, which is The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which I'm so excited for you to read. So excited. She's on her new publishing contract with William Collins and Sons. Yay. And she'll stay with them for the majority of her writing career. So I think she liked that contract a lot better. So in her personal life, that's what's happening in the publishing world. When this is published, her daughter is turning five in a couple months. And as far as the outer world knows, she's still in a very successful and happy marriage. Not surprisingly, that is not true for long. But we're not there yet. We're not quite to the point of why uh, Agatha Christie gets shown into a Doctor Who episode. Soon. So anyway, when it came out, they had recently moved into... Sunningdale, which is a large village with several golf clubs for her husband who loves golfing. Sounds like Florida. It does. Anyway, so they were living in a flat called Scottswood, which by flat, I don't mean apartment, I mean house. Because this is the house that they would go on to rename Styles mm. after her first book. So this is the house. Oh. So that's what's going on in their personal life as this is being published. So this book was originally published as 11 stories in the UK in 1924, but by the time it was published in the U.S., the year later, because it's always a year later, it featured three new stories. So because it was coming out so much later, there's a fun fact. The New York Times book review reviewed the one in the U.K. version instead of the U.S. version. Mm -hmm. And so they were missing three of the stories that the U.S. audiences would have gotten. Gotta get that review in. Gotta go fast. Yeah. Gotta keep up. Yeah, I just love that. She just was like, you know what sounds good? Now that I've published this book, writing three more. Just going to add a little bit more. It's fine. And 
And the UK version on the dust jacket, it has an image of Hercule Poirot on it, which is so cool. It, apparently somebody made it for an issue of the Sketch magazine in 1923. And so on the dust jacket for this book, Hercule Poirot. So that's a really cool first edition. That is so cool. I wonder how much that would be. I know an original first edition first book for Nancy Drew with the original dust jacket, it was like a thousand dollars. Can't afford that. So in the review by the New York Times book review, they pointed out that it was very Sherlock's home-esque instead of being her style from before. And it really is. Yeah. There's even a whole, oh, I am telling you this story much later because I couldn't tell you the story at the time because it involved government secrets. But now some XYZ time has passed and so now I shall share with you this government secret that Perot solved. I was like, that is such a Watson setup. Yeah. So interestingly enough, New York Times said it like it was a bad thing, but there were other reviewers who pointed it out, but as a good thing. And honestly, she kind of nails the style, so I'm not mad. Sherlock Holmes and Watson setup is a great setup. Yeah. But as soon as I said that, I was like, yeah, it's really obvious. She was just trying something new. Yeah. And oh, do they know each other? Okay. Now I have a question. We're going on another tangent. What was her relationship with Arthur Colonador? I wonder. I like how this is stated. There is no record of Agatha Christie disliking Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, apparently she was seen as the next Doyle when she first came out. And so everyone was like, oh, it's the new Doyle. And about the time she started really gaining the market, Doyle had stopped writing and gone into his spiritualism and the later portion of his life. But apparently they didn't have a close relationship. They probably knew each other. I feel like it would be hard for them not. Yeah. But it's a, it was basically like, meh. Very neutral. And this was fun. It was a nice little segue from the normal style, but I would be sad if she wrote like Doyle. I really like Perot. Yeah, I mean, she has a very distinct style and I like it. And it has inspired so many others that are also good. So this was fun. Knew nothing about this going in. Did not know this was a short story collection until I got the book. Doesn't really say anything on the cover, you know? Yeah, it's just like, surprise, short stories. I don't even think it had it on the cover to skip ahead a little bit. It was just like Perot investigates. So I was like, oh, cool. And I opened the book. I was like, oh, short stories. Cool. So before I jump completely to that, age level adult content warning, general racism, but there are specifically racial slurs toward Chinese and Japanese people. Sexism, suicide, murder, blood, kidnapping mentioned and drugging mentioned. Which all seem to be pretty standard for her books. Except for the racial slurs. That was weird. Yeah, that caught me off guard. But everything else I was like, yep. And I don't know enough about the time period and her personal views. Because the person that says the Chinese racial slur is the snobby woman that Perot thinks is a suspect. Or it seems to be a suspect. So I don't know if it's to be like, oh, she's a terrible person. Or if it's 1920s, oh, we just don't think that's a bad thing to do. Yeah. So I don't know historical context. It did fit her character, though. I was like, oh, wow, wasn't expecting it, but it was also, yeah, she would be the one. But that was just the thing that caught me off guard because there are other ones that get updated and take out racial slurs, for example, and then there were none, was not originally named, and then there were none. Ah. It had a black person racial slur, and then it had Indians as a Native Americans, 
Collins. Eventually it got updated and the book itself got updated because nowadays you'll buy it and it has sailor figurines and originally it was not sailor figurines. So her books are not opposed to being updated. So it just really caught me by surprise. That's a good point. Hmm. And so I don't know if it was kept in for a specific reason or if they were just like, nah, this isn't as popular a book. We're not going to change anything. I guess I'll see what the rest of the books do. Yeah. And I can't remember the context of the other racial slur, honestly. Yeah, it's been a minute since I've listened. When we're going through them, I'll be like, this is the one with the racial slur if you want to skip those. Or if you want to skip the book altogether, that's totally fine. Do what you think is right. So to judge book by its cover, I have the not the newest one because apparently they did another reprint. Oh. But one of the more recent ones where it's kind of art deco style. It's a boat. I think you have the same one I do. Like a boat and there's like a lady in a red jacket. And another dude. And it looks like they're going on the boat. I thought maybe it was going to be kind of like the Death on the Nile. Mm-hmm. Where he solves a mystery on a boat. Yeah. Was there even a boat mentioned in any of these stories? Yeah, he goes on a boat, but no boat specific mystery. So I don't know. Yeah, the boat just seemed like an odd choice, but I mean, whatever floats your boat. Also the title, I mean, the title works for the short story collection, but to be like, oh, what does this mean? Perot investigates. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he does. (laughs) That is a fact. He does investigate. And I'll agree on this. Yep. But this was fun. We can go through each of the stories. And we start with the adventure of the Western star. So there is this famous American movie star. And she goes to Perot because she received a letter about this amazing diamond that she had being stolen. This is the one with the Chinese racial slur. And so the diamond is called the Western star because it's a diamond and from the West and they named jewels specifically i guess the letter was given to her by a chinese man and her husband bought the diamond from a chinese man in san francisco three years ago Mm -hmm. and apparently he bought it supposedly for a tenth of the price which immediately yikes that's some alarm bells that should have been going on but nah it's a great deal rich people gonna be stingy you don't stay rich if you keep spending money exactly bro i was like hey i want to hold on to the diamond but mary's like uh my life being in danger pretty rock my life being in danger pretty i'm gonna have to go with the pretty rock sorry man she wants to wear it because she's going out of town yeah because her husband was supposedly seen with this lady Yardley that they're visiting three years ago. And so here is my thought at this point, uh, which is at the very beginning, that the Yardleys were the one behind it. So here's the thing. They got it supposedly from the Yardleys. And so I thought, oh, maybe the Yardleys were supposed to sell them a fake. But by accident, Gregory got the real thing. And so now they're trying to get it back. And apparently there's also a Star of the East, which is supposed to be a second diamond that was supposedly stolen. But yeah, Mary is like pretty rock and decides to keep it. I don't know why she came to Burrow to begin with. She's like, I'm going to tell you about my problem, but that's it. Don't help. I just want you to listen. Thanks. So Lady Yardley shows up. And she shows up because she was suggested by Mary Cavendish. Shout out to the first book. Yep. Apparently they're friends. Mary Cavendish was like, hey, you should go to Perot. So she goes to Perot. Hastings is the one who gets her, though. And he pulls up Perot and he's like, I have deduced that you are also here because you got a threatening letter. And she's like, yes, that is absolutely why she was here. <laughs> and stupid me, I believe in Hastings. Yeah. And that screwed me over in solving the mystery. Yeah, I was like, oh, Hastings actually doing a good job. No. 
I was wrong. Disappointed yet again. Never believe in Hastings. This is why we have an anti-Hastings club. Yep. You ruined everything. Yeah. If there's a book where he actually does a good job, I will be shocked. He's about to go away anyway. Yeah, the next book he's not in here, so. One last hurrah having to deal with him. Anyway, so because of that, I thought maybe that Mary was doing it. But then she was like, oh, I destroyed the letter. I didn't give it to you. So I was back to the Yardleys. Yeah. So Perot's like, okay, let's go to the house. Lord Yardley is like, hey, so we're broke. And I'm going to have to sell the diamond or we have to let people do a movie in our house. Which would just be so terrible. Oh, my gosh. I don't understand. Movie sets are temporary. Selling diamonds are forever. But no, can't do that. Apparently, the movie set is just too terrible. That's the better solution, man. Maybe it was going to be a bad film and he wouldn't want. But you don't have to tell people it's your house. Yeah. If it's a bad movie, then no one will see it. And if it's a good movie, you can be like, hey, my house was in this great movie. Yeah, it's bragging rights. And surprisingly, Lady Yardley wants him to do the movie and not sell her diamond. But Perot's like, hey, Yardley, I'll be at your house at 5 p.m. And you'll learn there that he's like, cool, 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 cool. But as soon as they get there, he gets a letter from the buyer that's like, this has to happen tonight because I am sailing to America. So you have to sell me the gym right now. So yeah, he's thinking about it. And then they're having dinner. Lady Yardley is wearing the necklace with the Star of the East, the diamond. She's wearing the pretty rock. When the lights go out, a door bangs and a woman screams. And I officially was like, Lady Yardley, why was she already across the room without her necklace suddenly claiming that some Chinese man stole it from her neck, even though the diamond came from India? Anyway, that felt weird. Suspicious. Yeah. Because she's on the ground by the door. Very, very dramatic. All the way over there. But yeah, she's like, oh, it's a Chinese Chinese man. It was like, the lights were out. How'd you know? You would have seen him from the back. I don't know. It was suspicious. And then Hastings finds the necklace, Sans diamond, and a torn Chinese robe. And it was just like, this is too much. Y'all are doing too much. This is too extra. I don't believe any of this. And then they just leave. Yeah. They find this evidence. Hastings is like, okay, we're leaving. Bye. And Perot's like, fine. I won't tell the Rolfs about this. I'll just let the paper inform them. So they just leave. Yeah. Why? I mean, I know Perot's reason. It was just weird. But they left. And so by 2 p.m. the next day, the other diamond has been stolen. Apparently, it was in the vault at the hotel. And somebody who's Rolfs identical, because Rolf claims he didn't do it, took it from the vault at 11.30. And apparently, Chinese man? Yeah, it was like, what's up with this one dude? Does Rolf look particularly Asian? Oh my gosh. And he's like, I don't look Asian. It was so bizarre. How would you be able to tell a Chinese person from anyone else, honestly? I have questions. Group think. Like I said, it was so extra. It really was. Anyway, so let's just go to the solution. <laughs> Over it. So, this one I didn't necessarily see coming. There were never two diamonds, just the one, and Rolf had it. He made the article where it was like, oh, there's a Chinese curse and blah, 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 blah. 
up and stole his own diamond that morning when he went into the hotel and was like, hey, give me the jewel case because, oh, it's Rolf's duplicate. Yeah, because it's Rolf. <laughs> Surprising how that works. So he had apparently been blackmailing Mrs. Yardley because they had an affair three years ago. And because Mr. Yardley was planning on selling the diamond, they had to plan this double robbery. Otherwise, Lord Yardley was going to find out. Mm-hmm. Hey, it's fake. <laughs> so unsurprisingly, Mrs. Yardley faked her own robbery and then Rolf faked his. Yes. I was half right. Yeah. I just didn't pick up on Rolf and Mrs. Yardley working together. Yeah. I suspected both of them at different times. I just never together. Anyway, Perot threatens Rolf and is like, hey, give the diamond back to the Yardleys. Yep. And this is when you find out. Perot's like, hey, so you messed up earlier. Because Hastings is like, oh, what about her fake letter? Blah, 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 blah. And Perot points out, did she bring up the letter? Or did you bring up the letter? And it's like, brah. <laughs> Hastings at it again. I trusted him. Can't trust him. My mistake. Yeah. So there's number one. Never trust Hastings. That's the moral of the story. Yep. But yeah, Mary, the American actress that's not great, is the one who uses the racial slur. And I guess I don't know which one it is. If it's just this is 1920s and we think racial slurs are okay. Or if it was supposed to come from her, be surprising, kind of shocking and being like, hey, she's probably not a great person. Because we don't spend that much time with Mary. We really don't. Oh, I don't know. It's weird that it's published in, I think the reprint happened in like 2012. And they didn't bother to take it out. So it makes me think it's meant to be there, but I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. So the next one is the tragedy at Marsden Manor. Yes. So this dude dies and he has a life insurance policy. It's suspicious. And so the insurance company hires Perot to make sure it wasn't insurance fraud. Because mm-hmm. it was just very suspicious. He died from internal bleeding and apparently was about to be bankrupt. But the policy benefits his young wife. Yes. So they're like, hmm. Suspicious. So the first one he interviews is the doctor. And immediately I was like, okay, either the husband and wife has been working with the doctor. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. Because the doctor is the one who did the autopsy. Mm-hmm. And no, Perot's just like, no, you're just incompetent. Granted, very early days in the forensics, this dude isn't a trained autopsy person like we have now. He's just this random doctor who's like, oh, I looked at the body. He was trying his best. And his best was not trained for this. So other than his pride, which definitely gets in the way. Yeah. But yeah, no, he didn't do an autopsy. He just saw blood on the lips and was immediately like, oh, internal bleeding because a gastric ulcer. Yep, that'll do it apparently so that's where i went from oh he's definitely in on it to oh he's just incompetent yikes maybe stop practicing well you should not be the coroner in this wherever we are i know we have so much more information about everything with forensics and all this stuff but immediately my brain was like poison oh yeah i was like which one was it there are a bunch of reasons a dude is bleeding out of the mouth it's not just a stomach ulcer random anyway get this get this the doc looks at the lips is like oh he had an ulcer and then apparently he was found with a gun because he supposedly died while shooting rooks Bruh. Yep, that's totally what happened. The gun is not important. He was just shooting things that weren't himself. Just an ulcer. Mm-hmm. Natural causes, man. Also, Perot takes a dig at Hastings about how Hastings has a good judge of character, except about beautiful women. <laughs> yeah, he's sick of Hastings being like, oh, it's meant to be. Accurate. Except who he marries is pretty awesome, but I think that's more speaking to how amazing she is and has nothing to do with Hastings. 
tastings. Yeah. So the second thing they do is interview the wife. And apparently the gardener found the body and the maid told the wife while the wife was changing for tea. And she was supposedly out and hadn't seen him since lunch because she went to get stamps in town. And she says she heard a shot or two from him hunting. Yep. When they look at the gun, they find that two shots had been fired. Totally at whatever he was hunting and not himself. Maid shows Pro upstairs? Maybe that's where they were like, hey, let's move the body and move him to wherever while they wait for burial and such. That makes sense. Okay, I talked myself into it. <laughs> of course, Hastings doesn't go with, so we don't have to describe the scene, but Perot comes back and is like, eh, wife, you're good. Yeah. Supposedly, the wife didn't know about the money. They had married little over a year ago and that supposedly he had an intuition of his death. And the wife thinks he had an episode of internal bleeding before? Oh, yeah. What? Just casual. Oh, yeah, you know, his internal organs are bleeding. His insides just bled one time. It's fine. Totally normal. Just casual things we live with every day. It was very weird. Throwing that out there. Oh, yeah, this totally happens. Okay. But I was going to take parole for his word that it wasn't the wife. So kept on going. So as they're leading, they see a suspicious man who had apparently stayed there last Tuesday, according to the gardener, but can't remember who the dude's name is. Tuesday was the day before the husband's death. So suspicious. Mm -hmm. I love this part. So watching him, Perot and Hastings follow him to find him meeting with the wife. And supposedly she thought he was on his way to East Africa by sea. And he's like, oh, no, his Scottish uncle died, leaving him an inheritance. So he didn't. And then he just so happened to see her husband's death in the paper. It's very convenient. Well, not just that. I was like, oh, weird. That's exactly what happened last book. <laughs> you were supposed to be on a ship to South America. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't. And then I just so happened to see the murder in the paper. How convenient. I can't remember the son's name from the last book at this point but okay i see you <laughs> it worked once why not again so perot and hastings get caught while they're having this conversation i think perot gives them away or something i can't remember off the top of my head but they get caught and it's just this awkward exchange to be like hey so we were definitely eavesdropping on this conversation <laughs> just act like that didn't happen it's okay i loved it i loved it so much it was like ha we have been eavesdropping on you goodbye <laughs> perfect way to just leave an awkward situation. So they go to the inn he's staying at. Apparently the dude didn't know the husband well but is a family friend. Not of the wife's family but the husband's family. So they had some sort of connection. And the dude's like, okay listen, there was nothing weird about him at dinner. Perot plays this weird association word game, you know, because of the psychology. Tells us so much. It does because, you know, it's an Agatha Christie book. And so when they do the word game, the only thing that stuck out to me it was some of the associations was shot and suicide. I was like, okay, that's weird. But Perot's like, no, this whole thing told a story. So he gets all this information like, oh, he doesn't know who the doctor is. His journey to the house wasn't important. And he likely told a story about someone committing suicide by a rook rifle on the farm. And all the doctor saw was blood on the lips. You know, just casual word game things. Yep. And immediately I was like, oh, so that's where the idea was gotten. Yes. <laughs> 
But also, I don't know anything about Rick rifles. I imagine any sort of hunting, there should be blood other places. Why is there no exit wound? Maybe it's not strong enough. I don't want to type my question into Google. No. The FBI will come looking for me at some point, I'm sure. Even if there's no exit wound, which I feel like there should be. There should be an entrance wound. Did he not move the body? Oh, wait, there is a hole there. I guess not. I have so many questions. Some things just don't need to be Googled. I I don't even know how I would format that question. So I just have questions. I'm going to take her word for it, but I have questions. Anyway, so they look at the body again and they're like, yeah, that totally happened. So Perot is like, oh, and by the way, places like this are totally haunted. Yes. Or, oh, things like this cause hauntings in places like this. And so soon after the parlor maid sees the master walking in the hallway. And so I was like, did he fake his death? Or is someone trying to scare the wife here? Since the weird things are happening, Perot's like, oh yeah, we'll totally stay here at the house. And there's stuff like, oh, a locked door opens and lights go out. And eventually all the scariness causes the wife to admit that she killed him. Yeah, I mean, that was pretty smart on their end to do that. I was like, that's a creative way to get a confession. Yeah, apparently Perot hired a theater friend to do a haunting with Inspector Jap's help. Hey, Inspector. He shows up in a number of these. It's fun. Reoccurring characters. As someone who's read these pretty out of order, it's fun to be like, oh, this really is the Marvel Universe. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I love it. That's so dramatic. It worked, so... It works great, but it's like Perot. There was no other way. No, he went for the most dramatic. He just wanted to have some fun. But all I could think immediately was, I don't know what their relationship was like, but she could have saved herself a lot of worry by waiting a little bit longer. Yeah. Granted, he was about to go bankrupt, so maybe time was of the essence there but it was just like I don't know. You're kind of the most suspicious person here. That whole story gave me questions. I mean, I liked it, but I feel like I have more questions than answers here. Yeah. So the next one is The Adventure of the Cheap Flat. Oh my gosh. I think this one was my favorite. I thought we were going to have a Sherlock Holmes thing where it's like, oh, I go to this job every day and they pay me a lot of money just to write from the dictionary or something. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, clearly your house is being used to facilitate a bank robbery and blah, 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 blah. No? I don't know what I was expecting, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's actually rather convoluted. So anyway, a friend of a friend just bought a really nice flat for super cheap, but apparently someone else went there and was like, oh, the house has been bought. And they went up, they're like, oh, dang it. And then they get in there and they're like, oh, no, it's not been bought. They've been misinformed. And so Hastings is like, oh, clearly you just went to the wrong flat. I love how he pretends to not be a Watson. Oh, here are my theories where Watson Watson's like, I have accepted my part in this. Yeah. Hastings is like, no, I'm totally smart. It seems like throughout all of these short stories and like all the books, Hastings is just kind of rude to Poro. And I'm like, dude, if you don't like him, why are you here? He just has such an ego, honestly, and such pride. Yeah. So he makes a terrible Watson, in my opinion. Honestly. He does not give the Watson vibes. But immediately I was like, okay, this is a scam. Something's going on here. This is weird. Especially since Hastings was like, oh, there's a logical explanation for it. I was like, immediately illogical. Whatever Hastings is saying is wrong. I learned my lesson from 
the first story. <laughs> Been burned once, it's not gonna happen again. Perot's immediately interested. He's like, this is weird. The flat is going for like at least 350 pounds. So you would think the sublease would be equal or more than that. But I think it's only like 50 pounds a month. Mm-hmm. It's something ridiculously cheap. And the porter of the place is like, oh yeah, they've just only been there for six months. The people who lease it. So pro, as you do, rents an apartment in this fancy hotel thingy that goes for at least 350 pounds. And I don't know if it's like America where the higher up you go, the more expensive, or if it's like France where the higher up you go because they don't have elevators in all the buildings, it's less expensive. But 350 pounds is a lot. And he's just like, here you go. I just want to know how much money Poro has. I mean, he's doing cases for everybody. Insurance companies, random American stars. But sometimes I'm like, do you actually get paid for this though? But then Hastings is like, oh yeah, he totally does all these investigations for people. I'm like, who pays you? Do the police pay you? How much do you get paid? Do you just have a lot of savings? Is this your nest egg here? Anyway, he rents an apartment two floors up and he's like, oh, I have to do this because something weird will happen there soon. There. It's vaguely just soon. So, okay. He uses the coal lift to get to their scullery, then fixes the latch so he can undo it from the front door. This feels like a huge security risk that you can just do this. But also, I couldn't imagine what a coal lift was, and the only thing Google gave me was coal mine stuff. Oh, I just visualize a dumbwaiter, but for coal? Yeah, but everything I've seen, like, granted this isn't coal mines, it looks more like an elevator than a dumbwaiter. Yeah. Which makes more sense with Perot and Hastings being able to go on it. Yeah, because I would mess up a dumbwaiter for sure. But if that's how it is, that's a huge security risk. Anyway, not the point. They just trust people enough to be like, nah, they wouldn't do that. So, you know, as Perot does, he learns that someone matching the wife's description might just happen to be international spy Elsa Hardet. As you do. Casually. And apparently a foreign man is looking for her. This is not where I was expecting the story to be going. No. So they just wait in the apartment now that they can get into it. Hastings with his revolver. And an hour later, someone is cutting out the lock to the front door. Not subtle. Screw picking locks, man. Cut the whole lock out. Just cut the whole thing off. It's fine. I guess that's time of it. I don't know which one's quicker. Is that more efficient for time? I feel like that would wake me up. I guess it depends on how they do it. What? they hear him doing it. Anyway, the point (laughs) is not that I'm an insanely light sleeper. The point is they manage to capture this random dude that turns out to be Italian. And they go to another place where Perot just harasses this dude to let them into this random house and then pushes him down the stairs to get in. They go up the stairs to the house. He's like, hey, let us in. They do that. And then Perot just like shoves him down the stairs. It worked. I'm concerned. And later they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's police there, so supposedly police grab him. But anyway, so Perot hides the Italian in the room, and then a woman matching the spy's description comes in, and the Italian comes out super dramatically with Perot gave him the gun. And at this point, you're thinking Perot is mad. And Hastings is just bamboozled. And you know immediately that was all just for the drama. Oh, yeah. Perot loves the drama. That's what I've learned. He calls Hastings a romantic. He's just chaotic. He's very chaotic. I love it. He's a 
messy bench that loves drama. And I love him for it. He's so good. So apparently Perot gave him the gun to scare the spy into handing over the documents that she stole. And of course, the Italian tries to shoot her, but the gun is not loaded. And I'm immediately like, dude, did you really think Perot handed you a loaded gun? He may be chaotic, but he still gets everything done well and with minimal bloodshed. That was dumb on his part. While he was hiding, he really should have checked to see if it was loaded or not, but that's beside the point. He just assumed. It's fine. This is when you find out, oh, police have been watching the house and they can't run away. So the explanation for this, they were trying to find a lookalike with the apartment scheme, and that's why they kept being like, oh, can't rent to you, it's been rented, it's been rented, it's been rented, until this friend of a friend of Perot's came in, they were like, perfect. And so they were supposed to get murdered instead of Elsa, because Elsa stole some documents from people that she shouldn't have stole documents from, and so they had a vendetta to murder her, so if they murdered someone thinking it was Elsa, then Elsa could get away. Ta-da! That's not where I thought the story was going. This story was just so chaotic, and I was like, this is good. This is unbridled chaos. I love it. Also, Perot just throws this large stuffed cat at Inspector Jap and just yells, meow! Yeah, it's gone off the deep end. I love it. This man. First of all, I love it. But second of all, imagine being his friend. That would be phenomenal. It's probably a lot more pleasant than being Sherlock's friend, but still. That would be so fun. The chaos. It would be perfect. Oh, and apparently Perot, instead of telling Jap outright that it's a stuffed cat, he just goes on a lecture about cats. And I have a question now, because he claims that black cats are good luck. Yeah. And now I have questions. Yeah, it made me wonder. Is that a UK thing? Is that a 1920s thing? Is that a Belgian thing? I don't know. Maybe Poirot just really likes black cats. Let's see. Most of Europe considers black cats to be a symbol of bad luck. In Japan, they're good luck. In southern France, they're good luck. In northern Europe, taking in and caring for a black cat can ensure fair weather and safe passage during voyages on the sea. Interesting. It is thought that the Norman and Germanic people originated the idea of a black cat crossing your path being bad luck and believe that a sighting of a black cat was the sign that death should occur soon. So it's a German thing that got spread everywhere. Interesting. I wonder which person had that experience and then was like, all black cats are bad. Okay, here we go. In Japan and the UK. So it's a UK thing. Hmm. According to cats.org.uk. This is now an episode about cats. Apparently. So, the mystery of Hunter's Lodge. I love it. Pro is sick today, so Hastings has to go investigate. This one was so funny because I was listening to this book right after I got over the flu, and I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's about how it feels. And the narrator for my book pretended to have a sick voice when doing Poirot, and I was like, this just makes it ten times better. Oh, I love it. It was phenomenal. Do they try to do a Belgian accent? I don't know. I don't actually remember. <laughs> I just remember it being like, that's dedication, or he was sick. Who knows? So, anyway, Hastings has to go with this Roger dude to see what's up with his uncle's murder. Early bets from me is that the wife did it. So, Inspector Jap is the one investigating. Hey, dude. We really like Inspector Jap. He's just everywhere. All right. So, the housekeeper says that a strange American man came to see Mr. Pace and then shot him in the house before escaping through the window. That is her idea of what has happened. Zoe, who is Roger's wife, says that the man showed up just before 9 p.m. while her husband had left at 6.15. So, this random dude that Zoe and now the housekeeper has insisted has been there. 
Yeah. So he'd been shot in the head and one of the mountain revolvers in the room is now gone. There were two of them on the wall and now one of them's gone. Yes. So Hastings checks out the crime scene and takes pictures for Perot because Perot is of course still investigating even though he's sick. So Hastings meets up with Inspector Jap and sees the body and he was specifically shot in the back of the head. And immediately I was like, that's weird because they were like, oh yeah, they were arguing. And I was like, you don't turn your back on someone you're arguing with. No. Like there has to be a huge provocation to do that. That's just not the instinct. That's not what we do. Unless you're like going to walk away or something. Yeah, it would take a really big event to cause someone to look away when they're arguing with this random American that no one seems to know. So the inspector's gut is telling him that it's Roger, the nephew. But he has a solid alibi of getting on a train that arrived in London at 1030, where he immediately went somewhere verifiable. I was like, okay, so it's not like the last book when he went on the train, but not at the right time and then came back or something. Yeah. Even though he does have a strange past with money and stuff. So he's like, hmm. And I'm still betting on the wife, Zoe, not the uncle's wife. They find the murder weapon in a package stuck in between the tracks of a railway. I have no idea how they found this. Yeah. Why were they like, let's go look there. My bets are like some kids were walking around it and found it that way. Because there's no way the police were like, let's go walk along the railway. Unless they've tried everything else. Yeah, they're busy. So Hastings sends a letter to Perot, who immediately wires back, asking the outfits of the housekeeper and the wife today. Also, apparently, Hastings sucks at interior photography. (laughs) Such a shame. You could do one thing right. That would be great. Anyway, Hastings sends the information back. I don't think it was mentioned what they were wearing, or if it was, it was before this, and I was not paying attention to that. But he sends the information to him, and Perot immediately tells Jap to arrest the housekeeper immediately. Before she gets away. But they get to the house and she's already gone. Apparently she had only been working there for three weeks, so it's super weird. Maybe she did it. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, oh, let's check with the agency that sent her. And Perot's like, it's going to be useless. They won't have heard of her. But they check anyway. Haven't heard of her. And according to the agency, Zoe was just like, oh, I hired someone. And they didn't say which one that was hired. They just sent the fee. And I'm just like, that seems like an oversight on their part. Because they should know which ones sent was hired so they don't send them to other people. They should have known all the other people that went to interviews were sent on other ones. Very poorly managed. Very poorly managed. I'm assuming they got the fee and were happy, but even logically, you should know. Anyway, there was never one, so it works out, which this caught me, and I was like, oh, that's on me. Hastings never saw the housekeeper and Zoe at the same time. The housekeeper was there. I was like, oh yeah, I'll go get her. Walks upstairs, and then a couple of minutes later, Zoe comes down. That's on me. I should have noticed that. The nephew is hard up for cash because, of course, he is, and he has questionable morals, and his uncle's death would be mighty convenient. Just a little. Yeah, and so so Zoe created an alibi for herself because he, the nephew, had an alibi and she was like, oh, I'll invent this housekeeper so people will be like, oh yeah, the housekeeper has given her an alibi. Which, on the side note, let's talk about this real quick because we brought this up. Uh, this is a very side note. By the way, Zoe was the housekeeper all this whole time. Hastings mentions loving Dickens. Oh, yeah. Because in Murder of Orient Express, Perot's like, I've read my Dickens and makes a reference to it. So I wonder if Hastings' love for Dickens got Perot to read it. Oh. 
I don't know. Maybe that comes up, but it was a cute thing. And I was like, huh. Anyway, back to the murder. Roger, the nephew, was in charge of making a fake murder weapon. So he took the gun, fired a shot, and then hit it on the train in the nearby town to London to get the police away from the lodge. So he totally went on this train and then walked back, put stuff in the train track so people wouldn't think it was people at the lodge. So Zoe murdered him with the other gun that was still mounted on the room and then added a bullet to make it look like it hadn't been used. Oh my goodness, how much gunshot residue and other things have come. It has full bullets. It couldn't have been shot two days ago. Reloading bullets? What? No. Also, what is this gun safety? (laughs) What is this dude with loaded guns on the wall? Not in... Oh my gosh. Gun safety? No. Not the point. So anyway, they get away with murder. They don't catch... The police don't catch him. But then years later, they die in a plane crash. And Perot's like, cool. Karma got to them in the end, I guess. Well, dang. Okay, Batman. (laughs) Jeez. We've moved over to this is the DC universe. (laughs) A little dark. Yeah, we had a crossover episode. (laughs) Goodness. I was like, dang, okay. We won't catch them, but we'll murder them in a plane crash. It's all good. Yeah. All I can think about is like, oh, karma got to them in the end. What about everybody else on that plane? Unfortunate byproducts. Goodness. That was what I thought about. Agatha must have been in a bad mood writing this one. Like the pilot? This wasn't just them. They were in a plane crash that involves other people. Nah, karma got them. What about everybody else? Ooh, okay. Moving on. Million dollar bond robbery. This lady named Esme, which I love as a name and a concept, but I could not imagine actually meeting a person with that name. It's one of those names. Yeah. It'd be like meeting someone in the US called Gertrude. Anyway, not the point. Esme Farquhar. F-A-R-Q-U-H-A-R. Yeah, I no help here. I don't know. She's about to marry someone named Ridgeway, and that just seems a lot better for me. She's engaged to this dude named Philip, who is in charge of these bonds at a bank, and they go missing. So Esme goes to Perot and is like, hey, we need your help. He went on this trip. He had bonds in his suitcase. And when they got to the other place, they weren't there. They just vanished on the boat and they think Philip did it. And Philip noticed there was an issue when his trunk was cast open and stuff was strewn about. It was weird because they clearly tried to force the lock. Uh-huh. But then it was opened with a key. So immediately I'm like, was that for show? To throw off suspicion about when it was stolen? Because wouldn't it be smart to wait until he gets all the way there? And so I was like, okay, it's weird that they're like, this is when. It should be obvious that... It was stolen, right? Mm-hmm. So apparently each lock is different and Philip had his key the whole time. There's three keys total. And supposedly the other two were in the bank safe back in the UK, which belonged to the two owners. I think one of the owners died recently. So there's only one guy left. So they go over the entire boat and nothing. And there was no way for them to have gotten off the ship either. So it's weird. So... They ask about the passengers and Perot asks for a specific one. Oh, what about XYZ person? And they're like, oh, he was the last one off the boat. So it couldn't be him. I think it was the neighbor or something. This was a very short one and I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay. So I didn't guess it only because I assumed that Philip had seen them 
in the case. They think the package was thrown overboard because, shock and surprise, the bonds weren't in it to begin with. There was just something heavy to make it seem like bonds were in it. That made me wonder how heavy the bonds are. Yeah, because the weird thing was the bonds had been sold before the boat came in. And I was like, well, how in the heck is that even possible? Which a little bit saves Philip because he couldn't have done it. But they're still like, oh, you worked with someone to do it, maybe. Anyway, they had been mailed on another ship that was faster, getting there like a day before the boat arrived. And the only other living bank owner is Mr. Shaw. And he faked an illness. was like, oh, I'm too sick. I can't come and do things. I'm going to be out for like two weeks and then got on the boat and disguised himself to throw away the package because he had them the entire time. So that was the only thing. I would have probably have thought that, oh, they were never in there to begin with, except I assumed that Philip wasn't an idiot and had actually seen the bonds in the thing. So that's a nice short one. Pretty simple. That was a nice break from the longer ones. So the next one is The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb, which is the one where they go on a boat and they go to Egypt for the first time. I also thoroughly enjoyed this one. Which is interesting. Because Death on the Nile, I think he mentions, oh, I've been here before, but I didn't get to enjoy it or something like that. He didn't get to enjoy it the second time either. Sorry, Poro. Maybe he enjoyed some of it. I don't know. Anyway, that's beside the point. So classic setup. A tomb has been found. They're looking through it. And then suddenly strange deaths happen. And so immediately I was like, oh, someone wants to keep the loot for themselves. Mysterious deaths. Someone's trying to keep the loot. Immediate suspicions. But also there is a phrase that something was raised to a fetish point. The rumor had been raised to a fetish point and now everyone's just made it so much bigger than it was because now apparently, oh, we saw Anubis and he's murdering people and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it was an interesting phrase. That's not Anubis's job. It is now. I feel like you could have gotten set in there. He's the god of murderers. Anyway, that's beside the point. My amateur Egyptology aside, I love that line. This was raised to a fetish point. You know how people get about gossip? Yeah, I was like, oh, interesting. That's a pretty accurate description. Yeah, we should use that. Bring it back. Lady Willard, who has a son there because her husband was the lead investigator, he had a suspicious desk and now her son is taking over and wants to take over for his father's part and she's like, please solve this so I don't lose my son. Fair. So immediately Perot tries to learn more about the nephew. There are several people that got murdered. Oh my gosh, I did not write good notes on this because, oh, there are three deaths. I remember. I'm trying to remember. You might need to help me. Oh, goodness. Aren't there three deaths? One that happens in Egypt, one that happens in England, and then another that happens in Egypt? Or two happened in England or something, right? Maybe. Anyway, not all the deaths happened in Egypt. That's the point here. Yeah. So John Willard is the first that died. He helped discover the tomb, then died of heart failure. Mr. Blebner, he financed the expedition, and he helped discover the the tune then died of acute blood poisoning two weeks after the first one. Which just sounds miserable. Yeah. Rupert Blebner is the nephew and that is the first one that Perot looks into because a few days after the uncle's death he shot himself in New York. He doesn't seem to have much to do with expedition so this is weird. Why did this random dude die? John by the way is Lady Willard's husband and the dad of Guy Willard who's trying to take over. So many characters. (laughs) Yes. So Hastings immediately like oh clearly he killed John 
by mistake because the nephew had gone to Egypt when John died. Like he had been there, but he didn't have much to do. It was weird. It was a weird situation that he was there because he didn't seem close to his uncle. So Hastings like, oh, clearly he killed John by mistake and then was super guilty about it and then killed himself. So obviously that's not the solution. So they go to Egypt, right? Right? (laughs) There's a hint about Perot getting seasick, which does come up in a bunch of the books, but the scene of Perot riding a camel. Oh my gosh, yes. I didn't know I needed that in my life. I didn't either. Beautiful. Loved it. Perfection. But by the time they reach the campsite, this other dude, Mr. Schneider, has died of tetanus. So all four of them have died in different ways. Mm-hmm. Mr. Blebner got blood poisoning due to a cut. Which immediately made me think, oh, someone's going around cutting people. Like, Snyder got cut and died of tetanus. Mr. Blebner got blood poisoning due to a cut. Someone's just going out there cutting people. Yeah. Slashing damage. (laughs) Yes. Slashing and then poison damage? Poison came later. Yes. Someone's just out here with a poison slash rusty knife or whatever. So, somebody reveals that the nephew that shot himself knew Snyder and Ames. And apparently Snyder talked Blebner into giving his fortune to continue his life's work. Mm-hmm. So we've got a, a lot of connections with a lot of dead guys, except Ames is still alive. So immediately I knew it was Ames. Yeah. <laughs> when everyone's connected and you're the only one alive. It's a little suspicious. So they're worried about this curse and Ames isn't, which is another thing. Mm-hmm. At least pretend like you believe in the curse. But anyway, at dinner, a jackal-shaped creature is among the tents. Oh my gosh. Yes. And entered Dr. Ames's. Even though Guy thought it was Harper's tent. So Perot makes safety wards in the sand around their tent. Yeah, and you're like, wow, Perot's a little superstitious there. I immediately thought he was putting on a show. He is dramatic. That is true. So, of course, the first thing he does is the most dramatic thing of, oh, I totally believe in this curse. Let's create wards in the sand. It's also very possible. So then, once again, in the most dramatic way possible, he's given a cup of tea that seems to make him convulse and possibly kill him. So they go and get Dr. Ames. Oh my gosh, doctor, doctor. Because Ames is the doctor here and should have been taking care of people. Hmm. Also suspicious when all these people are dying and there's a doctor on site. But that's beside the point. He did not do a good job of making himself look less suspicious. Even with the curse. So I did figure this one out pretty easily. But that's beside the point. It's still fun because Perot completely faked it. He was just convulsing for effect and to convince Dr. Ames that his plan had worked. Because he never drank it. Which is good. It was suspicious. I was even like, oh, you probably shouldn't drink that. And then he drank that and I was like, oh, oh no, you probably shouldn't have done that. And then he didn't. So it worked out. He's a smart cookie. So Perot's like, haha, we have figured out your scheme and I am going to give this cup of tea to the chemist and he will prove that you have poisoned it. And so Ames is like, oh, crap. And then eats a cyanide pill. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's disappointing. So get this. John really did die from a heart attack. Which, that sucks, man. This is the epitome of your life's work. And to die from a heart attack before it's complete is really suckish. Yeah, that must feel bad. But because of that, Ames is like, huh, no, it'd be pretty convenient if a lot more people dropped dead. This curse and everything. So he was the one bankrolling this nephew and being like, yeah, you should totally come to Egypt and stuff. So this dude, get this, Ames convinces him he actually has leprosy. And so that's 
that's why the nephew killed himself. There's a really good book called The Second Life of Muriel West, which is a historical fiction that follows a woman in 1920s that gets leprosy and has to go and live in a leper colony. If you want more information on why that would have been so bad and he committed suicide rather than deal with having leprosy, highly recommend that book. It's a good one. But apparently the nephew's will benefited Ames. And the uncle, without a will, it would all pass to the nephew. So it passed to the nephew. So nephew has a lot of extra money. And then Ames convinced nephew to kill himself because of the leprosy diagnosis and all of it went to Ames. So it had nothing to do with the Egyptian stuff. He just took advantage of the situation. So it was a little off, but still I knew it was Ames. Get this though. Okay, first of all, Snyder had to die because he suspected Ames. Either that or he wanted another motiveless death to be like, hey, curse. But get this. Perot got this random dude from the campsite who is helping them out. He got him to dress up as Anubis. Yes. But it didn't seem to worry Ames. And so Perot was like... Hmm. So that's when he started doing like the things in the sand and all that extraness to be like, Ames, you should totally target me next because I totally believe in the curse. Mm -hmm. The most dramatic. I mean, he was pretty convincing. He's always convincing. That's true. The most dramatic. (laughs) All right. The jewelry robbery at the Grand Metropolitan. So Hastings gets some money and he's like, hey, Perot, let's go on vacation. And so they go to Brighton. Brighton Prejudice. Oh my gosh, yes. I remember that. That's the only thing I know about Brighton (laughs) what I know from Pride and Prejudice. Anyway, it's a vacation spot. People like to go there. So they get there and for some reason, a bunch of people are at Brighton. There's a lot of people and the women are wearing a ton of jewelry, which is apparently weird for this area. Yeah. So they go and they find people that Hastings knows. Hastings knows a lot of people. They both know a lot of people. True. If anything, I was surprised that Hastings knew the person and Perot didn't. Anyway, so they sit down to coffee and they're talking and the wife is like, hey, I told totally want to show you this really cool necklace that I have. So she goes up to her room to which the husband mentions money's been tight and he's been thinking about selling the necklace. And I was like, oh, that sucks. That apparently is happening a lot in your investigations, bro. Yeah. But then a page stops by and suddenly the husband runs off and it's obvious to everyone but Hastings that something bad has happened. Hastings is an idiot. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I'm thinking insurance fraud. So kind of like the first story but to trick the insurance yeah to get the money for it and that way she can keep the necklace so unsurprisingly the necklace has been gone thefted stolen there we go words and pros immediately asked him investigate the case of course so the things they know is that no maids are allowed in the room without the woman that owns the necklace celestine Celestine? I don't remember. It looks familiar, but I can't pronounce it. Anyway. It's a very pretty name. Yeah. C-E-L-E-S-T-I-N-E for anyone else who wants to give it a go. But she's super paranoid. And so she doesn't let the maids in without her there. Which is fair. So earlier in the day, she was thinking about wearing the pearls, but decided it against it, which is the thing that got stolen is the pearls, but decided it against it and put them in a locked jewelry box that she keeps in one of her drawers, like under a bunch of stuff. And then she keeps the key 
on a chain around her neck. But turns out the lock is super simple. Anyone can pick it. And I was like, oh, all that precaution for nothing. A for effort. So this is what got me, though, is she put it in the bottom of a drawer, but didn't lock the drawer. And I was like, oh, that was a miss. But given who ends up doing it, Mm -hmm. probably would have gotten picked anyway. So the wife didn't leave the apartment, but did leave the main room twice while the chambermaid was cleaning to get knitting stuff. And so the chambermaid is searched and so is the wife and neither of them had the pearls on them. Perot runs an experiment and proves that the chambermaid didn't have the time to steal the necklace by herself as things stand with the whole knitting stuff, which is good because the chambermaid is very upset at being accused. Oh my gosh, yes. Thoroughly upset. So there's three doors into this room. One to the maid's room, one to the hallway, and one to the next apartment, which should be bolted up. And I hate the hotel setups where whatever into the next room, I hate it. I understand the situational moments where it would be helpful. I hate it. Yeah. So Perot confirms that it's bolted on both sides presently. Which brings up the question, oh, how were they able to lock both sides if somebody came in? Yeah. But still, presently. So they do a new investigation and they find the pearls in the mattress of the maid's room. So Perot and Hastings are like, oh, well, this is awkward. But the next day they continue their investigation (laughs) and they check out the room next door, which is covered in dust. Yep. Which I love when a room's covered in dust and you're investigating because you really quickly find out what's been disturbed recently. Oh, yeah. My allergies don't love it, but my... My brain is like, yes. The allergies will be fine. It'll be okay. I would have been sneezing so much. But I kind of love this turnabout. Perot reveals that the pearls that they found are fake. And since the wife couldn't tell that they were fake when they were found, he's like, oh, clearly the pearls were actually stolen before she locked them up. So she locked up a fake pearl necklace in her lock and put it down. So our timeline has definitely opened up more. Yeah. So they go and look at the husband's room. Apparently there's a valet that takes care of the men's rooms. Which, I mean, I wish I could have a valet for my room. That'd be nice. Well, technically you would get a chambermaid. That'd also be nice. (laughs) So... He shows both of them a card and neither of them recognize it. And I was like, is that a business card? So he checks the wastebasket and finds that the necklace has been heavily insured. So I don't know what your guesses were here, but immediately I was like, my bet is the husband either switched it a while ago to sell and kept her happy with a fake necklace or they never had them in the first place. That's why the wife didn't notice the difference. Yeah, or she's just not very perceptive. Yeah, but Perot figured it out really quick. And granted, maybe he's had more experience with fake versus real. But I don't know, if you owned it, you'd think... I guess it was a really good... I don't know. You would pick up on something, yeah. I don't know anything about real pearls. Let's be honest here. So, I can't say nothing. Yeah, I got nothing. They're white. They have to come in other colors than white, so I don't know. But I feel like pearl would be different than paste. Yeah. That's my assumption. I could totally be wrong. Yeah. So, Perot just leaves. He's like, okay, guys, I gotta go to London. I'll be back. Hastings is like, oh, well, I guess I'll clean this shirt that I got chalk on. I hang with my friends a little too. So he goes out and hangs out with his friends and he comes back at 8 p.m. and Perot is there. And the husband and wife are there and they seem really happy. And immediately I'm like, oh, they're at my theories. So plot twist. The chambermaid and the valet did it. The French chalk I mentioned earlier was used by the chambermaid. That's how it got on Hastings shirt, which he apparently didn't think was weird. But that's beside the point. It kept the drawer opening completely silent. So when the wife went into the next room to get stuff she very quickly grabs the entire box gives it to the valet in the next room and then closes the door and the wife sits down and does whatever and 
so the second time the wife leaves, she runs back over to the door, grabs the empty box, and puts it back in the drawer. And that's how they were able to do it. And of course, the chambermaid put the fake necklace in the mattress that morning. So that whole time she had the real thing. And it was exactly that moment when it happened. So they did pretty good. They almost got away with it. They really did. Pretty solid plan. So the turns out, pros genius, the card he used is really good for getting fingerprints. And so he got both of their fingerprints and then he went to Inspector Jap, who confirmed that they're well-known jewel thieves. Yep. They get found out because of the dust in the room. And all I could think was if she had just done her job and dusted the room, she could have gotten away with it. But the room was nasty. Dust, man. It'll get you. The kidnapped prime minister. This is the one that I mentioned with the Watson entry. The whole, I am now publishing a case that has had to remain secret, but I can tell about my friend, insert detective, doing something for national security. Yes, that one was very Sherlock and Watson-esque. I don't know when he's like, oh, I can tell you now, but according to the timeline that is suggested, it seems to take place not long after A Mysterious Affair at Styles. Mm-hmm. So really close to after that case. Yeah, it was interesting trying to place when all these were happening in relation to other books. I also want to mention something because it's going to come up later. There are several times in this book where he has a case to begin with and he's already working on it when a new client shows up. And every time I was like, I think this is related. This It happens in this one. Perot has a case about a husband who went missing on his own accord. And then two people show up to report that the prime minister is missing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The red herring. I like that. How she uses each case to condition you to not realize clues in later cases. Yeah, it's very creative. So it's not just a bunch of random stories. They're like building blocks to keep you going and keep you not guessing. She does it well. It's very cool. So there's a prime minister stolen. It's not the real prime minister from the time, although people speculate that it's based on the real prime minister at the time. Mm. So he was needing to go to France for something or other and he supposedly made it to France where he got into a car waiting for him but it turns out that car was bogus they found the real driver bound and gagged on the side of the road and they don't know where the prime minister's gone and I thought it was weird that the real driver wasn't killed yeah. can give a description of the kidnappers. Maybe they're like, oh, you'll never be able to find me again. I just thought it was weird. If we're going to go all the way to kidnapping world leaders, you'd think murder would be thrown in there a little bit, but apparently not. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Kidnapping, yes. Murder, no. It was just weird. And so I was suspicious of the real driver. They have morals, okay? Apparently. Or he's involved. Those are my thoughts. So apparently there had been another attempt on the prime minister's life. He was almost shot. And I was like, oh. And there was this dude, Daniels, who was a very confused secretary. And he was there when he was almost shot the first time. And I was like, okay, I'm betting you're involved. There's no way that you're not involved in this. I don't think this could have happened without the secretary being involved. Mm -hmm. So because of this attempt at shooting, he had a team of detectives following him. And his chauffeur was CID, Criminal Investigation Department. It's a part of the police force force to which most plain clothes detectives belong to in the UK. Interesting. Kind of CIA, but you get the point. Maybe more FBI, but one of those. 
So he had like all these people following him, which the prime minister apparently didn't know about because he wouldn't have agreed. And I'm like, man, you are a world leader. If you die, bad things happen. Yeah. Please take your safety into more consideration. It sounds very stressful as well. So it kind of had like this World War One vibe. Mm. If you know what initially sparked outrage between Syria and Austria, where this car had a normal path they were going on. And then they went off the path and they were stopped by masked men. The prime minister stuck his head out of the window like an idiot. And that's when he was almost shot twice. Yes. And a weird thing is now that that chauffeur is missing and his card was found outside an unsavory restaurant known as a German agent meeting place. Spies and stuff, you know, because this is between World War One and World War Two, So not friendly. No. About to be a lot less friendly, but not friendly. So I thought maybe the chauffeur's win the prime minister but i don't know pro thinks about it and he decides that the kidnapping was to create a panic from uncertainty fair i mean it sounds like a effective plan if that's what you want to do if nothing else it's a very strong byproduct that they must have considered he decides the two events must be connected but why would they risk their good plan with the first one you know yeah they missed and so i was like well maybe mcadams wasn't the attended target maybe it's the chauffeur They just really hate that chauffeur. So the chauffeur, O'Murphy, and Daniels, the secretary, they have things about them that make them look suspicious, but also innocent. So you're kind of sitting there like, okay, maybe they're in on it, maybe they're not. So then they go to France. Casual. Which they kind of make them go to France. And so Perot's like, I don't need to be here. I just need to sit in a room and think. And so he gets a hotel room and then sits and thinks. And I thought it was funny because instead of him going back to London, he was like, nope, not dealing with seasickness. Gonna just sit here, get a hotel, sit here and think for five hours. Rather that than being seasick. Yeah, and so after thinking, then he's like, okay, yeah, we do need to go back to England. And it kind of goes into a non-sequitur, supposedly, of course, it's not a real non-sequitur, where Pro's like, okay, let me get all these places that are little cottage hospitals in a radius of London, because he was supposedly seen after getting shot at one of these places. I thought, well, what if he never left the hospital and someone took his place and supposedly went to France, you know? Yeah. I didn't even think about that. I don't think. I just simply exist. (laughs) They reach a house and they're just like, yeah, and we arrest a woman and two men. What? (laughs) Okay, then. I guess. O. Murphy is one of the men that gets out of the house and he's sitting with Hastings in one car and Perot is in the second car with the woman and the man. And they go to an aerodome and while Hastings thinks, (laughs) Hastings is like, Perot, just wire France. And Perot's just like, there are some things you can't send via telegram. And I was like, oh, clearly they need one of the prisoners there. And yeah, the second male prisoner is the prime minister. Hastings doesn't know what his prime minister looks like. Not in important to know. So I was kind of right and I'm proud of myself. (laughs) The shooting was actually a kidnapping of both the Prime Minister and O'Murphy, the chauffeur. And so they got two body doubles and Daniels, who was definitely in on it, kept the Prime Minister double away from anyone who knew the Prime Minister privately and he invented the shooting story to have a reason for the double to put a bandage around his head. Mm -hmm. The real ones were sent to live with Daniels' aunts, quote-unquote, There was never a hospital that treated McAdams, and they're all German spies. Very successful German spies, I want to point out, until they got caught. That's impressive. Yeah. A little nefarious, but impressive. Impressively nefarious. 
hilarious. I like the solution for that one, but reading it, it's one of those cases where you feel like Hastings and you're like, I have no idea what's going on anymore. I'm just going to get to the end where Perot explains what's going on. Yeah, that's typically how it goes. I know nothing. I'm just here. So the disappearance of Mr. Davenham, Inspector Jab makes a bet with Perot that he can't solve a strange disappearance. That was a dumb bet. <sighs> okay, so last Saturday, Davenham took the 1240 train to his country house. He ate lunch, then walked around the grounds, giving the gardeners instructions. Later, he told his wife that he was going into town to mail some letters and that he expected a Mr. Lowen on business. He wasn't seen again after leaving the grounds and wasn't even seen in the village to mail his letters. And Lowen showed up later, waited an hour and decided to leave. And at this point, I thought back to an earlier case and I was like, oh, Lowen is Davenham in disguise. It's a good thought. <laughs> Attempts. But they find that a safe had been broken into and rifled through in the study that Lowen was staying at. So they think it's likely that it was broken into on Saturday and either put back by an expert or someone with an accomplice in the house, possibly Lowen. So Lowen's under suspicion. Apparently they weren't on great terms because Lowen has a small time company for whatever company they have and beat Davenport to a big business deal. In the safe was a large amount of tender money and a small fortune in jewelry, all of which were Mrs. Davenport's because he had gotten very into jewelry collecting. And immediately I was like, oh, he plans to pawn all that. Mm -hmm. Suspicious just naturally start collecting high quality jewelry. Squinty eyes. It's very suspicious. Uh, Gardner saw a figure go around the side of the house that leads to the French window of the study before six. I think a French window is like... I have no idea. French doors? Yeah, it's like a French door. Oh, okay. We would would call them... They're known as windowed door or door-sized window. Mm. So someone could get in there fairly easily. Mm -hmm. Apparently, Davenham really frequently entered and left that way. So the gardener was like, eh. And past the rose garden, there's a rose garden in the back, is a lake with a boathouse. So this other inspector who's there is like, oh, I'm going to dredge the water, which makes sense. Mm -hmm. They find the clothes Davenham was wearing that day. So really weird, right? Mm -hmm. Which to me was like, oh, yeah, he turned into Lowen. It makes sense. He ditched the clothes and dressed up as Lowen. And a maid was like, oh, yeah, Lowen was coming through the study, through the rose garden, which behind has the boat. So he's suspicious and he gets arrested. Lowen claims he never left the study and then he checked out the rose garden. I was like, okay, so he's probably not Davenham because they would have figured that out really fast. So I was like, okay, Davenham set him up. My second thought Mm -hmm. because I try to figure these out. Sometimes I'm successful, not always. So there's this random dude named Billy who pawned Davenham's ring in London on Saturday night. He got arrested for drunkenly attacking a police officer later that night. So he's in jail. So he claims someone matching Lowen's description threw it down. And so I pawned it. This is their theory now. Beyond the house is the Rose Garden. Beyond the Rose Garden is the boathouse. Beyond the boathouse is the lake. Behind the lake is like lime kiln. This property goes on forever. Oh, yeah. But, you know, fight club, lime kiln. But it wouldn't have destroyed the ring. And so they were like, oh, this guy did it. He has the ring that he has to get rid of. So Perot's just like, oh, did they share a room? And they hadn't shared a room since last winter, which was like mid-June. He had gone 
all fall to Buenos Aires and then came back and then they don't share a room anymore. Perot pulls a really good friend move to his friends. He's like, hey, if you have money at that bank, you should really take it out right now. Yes. And then a couple days later, it fails. Davenham, who owns the bank, was embezzling. He used the fund to buy the fine jewelry and he would later replace it with paste and hide the real stuff for himself to sell. During this explanation, Perot just has a rant about eggs not being the same size and being very upset about it. That was important. <laughs> That's a very Perot thing. It's very Perot, but I just love he's giving this explanation and he's like, the dang eggs! <laughs> Priorities. Turns out he wasn't in Buenos Aires. I was close. He was pretending to be somebody else, but he was pretending to be Billy, who he had created a persona of and got sent to jail for doing stuff. And so he was actually in jail pretending to be Billy to create this persona. So when he pretended to be Billy to pawn stuff later to get Lowen in trouble, it would seem credible. <laughs> These people are exhausting. Never simple. Nothing simple. Everything's complicated. Oh, I'm so tired. The Adventure of the Italian Nobleman. Pro's visiting a Dr. Hawker when the housekeeper runs in and is like, oh man, Colony was being murdered over the phone. So Pro's like, okay, I'll come along and we can check this out. So they get there and they learn that this count dude was having dinner with two foreign men. And so they go in there and they look around. There are three meals, most of which had been eaten, except the dessert plates were left untouched. There were three cups of coffee, two black, one milk. All three drank porter, all three smoked, one cigar and two cigarettes. The writing desk where they find the dead body yet is still holding the phone. Super weird. But it seems like a final blow to the head from behind was delivered by a discarded marble statue. The base has a bloodstained. And the doctor is shocked he managed the phone call based on the injuries. So super suspicious. Mm -hmm. So immediately I was like, okay, so either it happened earlier than the head blow or more likely it wasn't the count making the phone call. There are your two options here. And so of course he notices that the receiver had been replaced after the call. Yeah. The murderer is an idiot. <laughs> so the way the food works is there's a service lift on the top floor for the kitchen. The guests call in and they're like, hey, I want this order. It gets sent down and then they put the dirty plates back and it goes up to the kitchen. Which is kind of cool. Oh, yeah. So there was an order placed at eight for three people and everything was fully eaten except for the rice souffle, which is important. So immediately Perot was like, oh, he was poisoned and the blow to the head was just to throw things off. Or at least that's what Hastings thinks he thinks. So you know where that gets us. It is wrong. And so the valet gives his story of what happened when these two guys showed up the previous day and he wasn't supposed to be eavesdropping, but of course he does. And they seem to be threatening him for something with monetary gain. And the Count insists that they come back the next day and dine with them and continue the conversation. Mm -hmm. Weird. So the next day they showed up at eight. They had the normal conversation until 830 when Graves was told to leave, mm -hmm. which is weird because earlier he was supposed to leave and he stayed to eavesdrop but that time he was like yep i'm out bye and so i was like well maybe he invented this two guys i mean no one else saw them the valet is the only person and the all of the hotel staff that saw them right mm -hmm. so the murder seems to have taken place at 8 47 because there's a clock that got dumped off the writing table classic but the time is about when the call was placed to the doctor which is a little suspicious so there is this guy named paolo who is an italian that came to meet with the count there are real italians they are real. So I was wrong a little bit on that. So they arrest the Italian dude, but 
Perot isn't convinced. He points out the curtains weren't drawn, which is weird to keep them open when you're smashing someone's head, you know? Mm-hmm. He points out that the coffee is black, possibly just poured straight from the pot, and also very little rice souffle had been eaten. I am confused. That is a really big clue where he's like, oh, clearly the valet ate all three of the meals and killed the count because rice souffle. Yes, exactly. I don't know enough about rice souffle to make a comment here, but like I said, it's apparently a very big clue that solves everything. Don't even know what it is. It's all weird. And the Italian ambassador gives Paolo an alibi. And so he gets released. Anyway, the other thing, the Count's teeth were white, even though he was supposedly drinking coffee, right? Three things of coffee had been drunk. Uh-huh. So that's weird because your teeth get stained by coffee. And this was before modern dental hygiene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the valet killed the Count at like eight with the marble statue. So that did happen because Hastings is always wrong. Yes. Yeah, and so he was like, hey, you're getting a call. And so he sat down at the desk to make the call, and then he killed him. And so that's why he had it in his hand. So then he rang for the food and ate all three portions, smoked three of the smokes, and set the clock, then smashed it. And then he made the call to give himself an alibi. Yes. Except he didn't eat the rice souffle. Should have had that. So confused, but it's fine. (laughs) The case of the missing will. This one gave me big Nancy Drew feels for some reason. Oh, yeah. The first book is about a missing will. That's probably what it was. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. This woman named Violet calls, and for the first time ever, and maybe it's because she's described as handsome and not beautiful, but Hastings doesn't like her. Mm-hmm. Something about her being too educated. Something like that, probably. So she's been orphaned, and so her uncle has taken her in. Yes. So she explains her uncle died and left her a challenge in the will to gain her inheritance through solving this mystery, so she hires Perot. Seems like cheating, but I I guess we could go for it's something it's important to know when you need help or something like that and at the end that's what Perot says he's like she knew the answer she knew to call Hercule Perot yeah she knew the extent of her abilities yeah so he goes to look through the study he notices a strange writing on a key in her old top desk there's this Mr. Baker who lies and is like that's totally it's handwriting and it's not and it's another case of a rich person writing two wills right next to each other yeah And so he wrote one, got it signed, and then ruined it, and then wrote the second one. Yes, totally makes sense. So they wrote two wills, and it was like, why do you make it this confusing? Stop it. Stop changing your wills. Give them to the lawyers. Stop this. Anyway, he hired a guy to put hollow bricks in his fireplace because, of course, when they open it, they find this charred paper, and they're like, oh, no, he did burn the will after all. No, there's an invisible ink on the note around the key that tells them where to find the will, and the will leaves everything to Violet. It was very Nancy Drew. Right? It was also kind of short. Yes, yeah, another like break from longer short stories. The Veiled Lady. Okay, Perot's bored, so of course murder and theft and all the things happen. So a heavily veiled woman comes to cure Perot's boredom, of course. So a man is blackmailing her over a letter she wrote to a soldier when she was 16. Basically, she was in love with him. She wrote him love letters and stuff, and he died in war. And now she's about to be married slash married to someone else, and if they find out about it she might be disgraced and whatever okay i'm so glad no one holds what i did at 16 over my head like that she had a life before you dude it's okay anyway the dude wants twenty thousand pounds in 1924 money which is like 1.5 million pounds today or almost two million dollars wow over a love letter she wrote to a soldier when she was 16 i can't that's crazy he's keeping the letter in a chinese puzzle box and is hiding the puzzle box yes so 
Pro just decides to burglar the house? Yeah. You go low, I go lower. So he finds it in a hollowed out piece of wood. Because of course. Why not? So Pro grabs it and tries to solve it. And conveniently, Hastings sleeps through Pro solving it. So we'll never know what the unsolvable puzzle was. The darn Hastings. So it turns out the heavily veiled woman that came by isn't the lady she said she was. She's a jewel thief that got double crossed by her partner. So she hired Perot to find the jewels in the Chinese puzzle box. And Pro figured this out immediately because she was wearing the wrong shoes. They just really make or break an outfit. I am very impressed with his knowledge of women's fashion. It's like that guy from Legally Blonde. Yes. So she tried to break into the house twice to get it and sucked at it. And so... There's a letter in the top compartment and the jewels in the bottom. And so she was expecting if he went in, he would go to the top compartment and be like, oh, this is all that's there. But he was like, no, no, no. There's a second one. And so he found the jewels. And so Inspector Jap is ready at the house to nap her immediately. Mm -hmm. This was the thing where there was a case in the beginning. She was so smart. She mentions the case and it means nothing. Like the one with the prime minister. It's like, oh, there's just a man who's with the Nope. This one was important. It was about jewel thieves. She got me. That was another one that I thoroughly enjoyed. That was a good one. I like it. The Lost Mine. Hastings finds out that Perot has a huge sum of shares in a mining company for solving a mystery for them. Mm-hmm. So apparently there's this mine, but it got lost to time and water. That darn water. There was a small jab about Hastings proposing to Cynthia and I'm here for it. Oh my gosh, yeah. I was like, good, good, Poro. He deserves ribbing for the rest of his life. Oh, absolutely. So there was a man who had the important documents about the, where the mine was. He came to London for this important meeting, but was murdered before he could attend it. And so the documents have been lost. So he left the hotel at like 1030 to go to this place. And the notes weren't found on his body or in the hotel. So somebody stole them. So Pro investigates who he was hanging out with as he was coming to London on the boat and he only seemed to interact with a Dyer and a Charles Lester and they show images of people or drawings and the hotel staff recognizes Lester. Mm -hmm. Lester claims he was there yeah but he actually left with a servant who is the guy who had the stuff and the servant tried to take him to the docks in a taxi except Wu didn't have a servant and the taxi driver came forward to say they actually went to an unsavory place in Chinatown an opium bin. An hour passed and then only Lester came out Mm-hmm. to the taxi and wanted to be taken to the station. Dyer is cleared of suspicion and of course the Opion Den workers deny everything. So they're at a standstill. Mm-hmm. But Lester gets arrested anyway along with the Opium Den owner but they can't find anything in the things. So they're like okay well what can we really do here? So there's a report that they actually went through the house and went to an eatery by the river and Lester was left alone. And so this dude Pearson oh my gosh. Pearson. He's one of the directors of the mining company and he's immediately like pro we need to go incognito we need to go investigate you need to shave off your mustache all in so we can go undercover of course pro is highly offended the assumption that he would ever shave off his mustache looking at you death on the nile movie 
2021 or whenever it came out because the one in the 80s or 70s is great highly recommend they do go there and they get invited to the opium den where they pretend to smoke and they investigate and they overhear a conversation about lester taking the papers Mm -hmm. but get this and i kind of love the reversal of it it was pearson Mm -hmm. he had abducted the dude on the train and then had an accomplice pretend to be him on the boat so his accomplice he was supposed to be kidnapped but his accomplice killed him Whoopsie. And that really put Pierce in a pickle because he's like, cool crap. He was supposed to go down for stealing the stuff. And then he learns about Lester and he's like, okay, let's frame him. Perfect. And so he has his accomplice pretend to be an assistant to take him to the drug den. And so he's been innocent this whole time and they figure it out. I just love it because he was like, let's go. Let's do this. Let's be serious. We're going to investigate. And it ends up screwing him over. We're a little too overzealous there, bud. How dare he say that Perot needs to shave his mustache? Poor new right? then. Shouldn't have suggested that. So, the last case, Hastings is basically like, oh, you've never been wrong in your life, and Perot's like, uh, I have been. Paraphrasing that conversation, of course. Mm-hmm. This is back in Belgium. There's this dude, Paul, I cannot pronounce his last name to save my life, who dies of a sudden heart failure right as he was about to be named minister. Mm-hmm. So, a woman comes to hire him instead of going to the police to solve the case. Interesting. So, Perot pretends to be a journalist from France instead of a detective. Yes. So the dude had died three days ago, and if foul play by poison, the chocolates are gone. Mm-hmm. So I can't really look into that. Paul had served all the food the night himself, and the coffee was from a communal pot. So it's like, okay, so how was he poisoned? He talks to a bunch of people. Someone was like, hey, you need to get a doctor. This dude is dying. And he was dead by the time the doctor got here. And they were like, yeah, he just turned red and dropped. So I was like, oh, there wasn't much time to save him. Sounds terrifying. So he looks around, and the only weird thing is there's a chocolate box that was full but with the wrong lid color. I don't remember which way it is but it's the box was blue but the top was pink. Yeah one of the ways. And so they confirmed yeah he always had a chocolate box in his house. He was constantly snacking on chocolates. And so there was one that got finished that got thrown away which is the one that they think is probably the poison one. And it is confirmed when they find the other one and it had a pink bottom and a blue top or vice versa Mm -hmm. so he apparently usually ate them after dinner he was the only one who ate the chocolate so apparently he was having this huge argument with this dude de saint Mm -hmm. he was a neighbor of paul's in france and then he was a guest at the time that Paul died. He came there to hang out with him or whatever, you know. Yeah. So the big thing between the Catholics and the Protestants? Yeah, it was a whole thing. And DeSaint is Catholic, so he looks suspicious, and DeSaint isn't with them anymore. He's dead. He's gone. So they're like, okay, well, clearly the poison would have had to come from the chemist. That's the easiest way. But the chemist is like, uh, yeah, the only things I've sent to them are, like, eye drops sent to his mom, Mm -hmm. which is an old prescription, and the poisoning symptoms don't match the ingredients. Yeah. But they find an English chemist who has a prescription for John for medicated chocolates, Mm -hmm. who is another guy who was staying with them at the time. He was Paul's friend who was English. So John had an actual need for them and he doesn't benefit from Paul dying. So it's like, okay, so it wasn't him. So who had a reason to switch the medication and kill Paul? And there is a confirmed that a bottle of John's medicine has gone missing. Mm -hmm. Definitely use John's medication to murder him. For sure. So Perot asked for this one dude's address and the lady that hired him was suddenly like, oh, there's clearly no mystery here. I was wrong. Bro's like, huh. 
yeah, I'm not done, so we're not done here. Which is funny, because the last book, he's like, I am not a bloodhound. And except for this one, when he's like, I am a bloodhound, and I'm like a dog with a scent, which makes me wonder, if since he failed this one when he was acting like a hunting dog, that now he's like, I don't do that. Oh, maybe. Just a thought. My thought. Maybe. So he gets the address for the dude. Perot pretends to be a plumber to get into the house. And in a locked cabinet, he finds the bottle of John's medicine that went missing. And so immediately you're like, oh, this one dude did it. No. Mm -hmm. The mom did it. Oh, no. Paul's mother did it. So the wife hired him and she figured it out. And that's why she was like, oh, there's no mystery. Just kidding. Totally normal here. Yeah, because the mom is like, what are you doing here? I demand you come back here and explain yourself. And Perot's like, well, here's my investigation. And she reveals that she poisoned him. Apparently, not only was he an evil spirit to her, he was a murderer because she was Catholic and her son was not and was doing a bunch of stuff to Catholics. But he also pushed his first wife down the stairs and mom saw. Yeah. And then he started seducing his current wife who left for the convent and that's where she is now. She's become a nun. Oh, I forgot about that. Because of all this nonsense. But yeah, I called it. As soon as they were like, oh, his first wife, the one that had all the money, mysteriously fell down the stairs. I was like, oh, he did it. So she poisoned the last chocolate in the box. Yeah. And when this other dude, the house that Perot just broke into was leaving, she slipped the vial into his pocket. And so Perot was like, oh, this dude did it when it was actually the mom who framed him. Mm-hmm. And Perot realizes his mistake. He's like, I should have known because there is only one person in this house who would have mixed up blue and pink lids. Mm-hmm. The lady with, I think she has cataracts or something like that, where she's basically basically blind mm-hmm. or has very limited vision. And that's why she needs those eye drops and everything. Yep. So yeah, that is the only time Perot has ever failed. Yes. So there you go. 13 cases. General thoughts. Well, that was fun. It was a nice change of pace for the longer books. It was just a nice change of pace. Yeah. Getting through those shorter stories. But nice stopping points. It was. It was really nice to just be like, I'm going to put this down for a hot minute and then come back to it versus a novel where I'm like, I'm not going to get an explanation to this for 13 more chapters so I need to keep going. It satisfied my need for almost immediate gratification. Yes. It was very good. Especially since some of them were super short. Yeah. Like 15 pages. Also you got to see just how chaotic Poirot can be sometimes. He's so chaotic and dramatic. My goodness. Totally like a different side of him. It makes you appreciate him more I think. It made me dislike Hastings. Alright so one question for the author. I'm really curious if she enjoyed novel length plots or short stories more? Yeah, and see, my question was sort of like that, but I wanted to know, why did she decide to do short stories instead of a novel, this go-around? Didn't she does plenty of other short story collections? Obviously, a majority of them are novels, and I assume a majority of them are novels because the reader would prefer that. Mm-hmm. So I'm just a little curious there, where I'm like, but which did you prefer more? Yeah, did she just have too many ideas, and that's why she decided to do short stories? Having a child, was she just writing when she had a chance? Yeah, because it is a commitment. It's the fourth book she's ever written. Yeah. And so it was a conscious choice to make, like, I am going to write a bunch of short stories. And like I said, you see threads through them, how reading earlier cases changes your opinion or your viewpoint of later ones. Yeah. It's just very interesting. For majority of the time, I think it keeps the you could solve it beforehand. She gives you the clues. Yeah. So it was a commitment. And so it's a choice. And so I was curious and maybe she 
enjoys both and she doesn't have a preferred, but I'd be curious her thoughts on writing both. Yeah. Rating. I give this a non-poisonous box of chocolates out of 10. <laughs> I need to specify that because I was going to make a Forrest Gump reference and I was like, wait a second. <laughs> I gave it wrong shoes out of 10. You just really make or break the outfit. I just like one little clue just made me giggle so much. I was like, that's perfect. It's a rating even though it doesn't make sense for my opinion of the book. No. Well, it was either that or tea time out of 10 because this just feels like stories where you would just sit down at tea and be like, so tell me a story. Oh, yes. So you can use whichever one of those you want. The shoes just made me laugh. You have tea. I have popcorn. Let's share. Would you read it again? Oh, yeah. I would. As I get more acquainted with it, I'm sure if I read it several times, you can pick and choose what stories you want to reread. Exactly. Especially if I were to get a physical copy, just reread favorite stories. The ones you really enjoy. And then you can skip the ones that you get less mileage out of. There are some of the longer ones where I'm like, eh. Yeah. I liked all of them, but rereading purposes, I don't know if I would spend the time to reread it because it's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. But it's just so easy to pick up and read any of them. Quick bout of Perot. Yeah, exactly. Here are the ones where he's super dramatic. Here are the ones where he's just normal. Here are the ones that have the least amount of hasting. Yeah, honestly. It's a good time. It's easy. Favorite in the series so far. Mine is still The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. You have not read that one yet. It's coming. Not the next episode because we have to do the Halloween party because the movie coming out. But the one after that, you will have read The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So I'll be curious. See if I can join you on the Roger side. But for you so far of the five we have read at this point. Oh yeah, dang. I've got to say it's actually this one, The Poirot Investigates, just because you can pick up the short stories. It was such a fun thing. I felt like you weren't getting bogged down, but you also got to see so many different sides. I could see that. I thoroughly enjoyed it. We'll see if it stays my favorite after the murder of Roger Ackroyd, but... I'm very curious. We shall see. Poirot is a little chaotic man. (laughs) But we love him for it. We love him. Good old Papa Poro. He really does call himself Papa Poro, and I love it. I love that. Oh my gosh. It's so good. All of it. Thank you for exploring Poro Investigates with us. I'm Sam Reiner. And I'm Hannah Rossell. And we hope to see you and a friend here next time. Escape With Me Book Club is a Lunar Skulk production. Check us out on TikTok or Instagram to keep up to date with us. Lunar underscore S-K-U-L-K.